So uh, these, the weeks together will be uh, talks on uh, the contemplation um, on death and dying. And uh, I think tonight's talk is probably the easiest of the four. And the reason I say that is because what I'm going to do after tonight is go into uh, the Buddhist Sutra on uh, death itself, which is called the Maranasati Sutra. And uh, it's one that challenges, I think will challenge all of us. And uh, the aim of which is to really actualize the concept of our own death in our own hearts. So if you hear that tonight, if you just want to stay tonight and not come back, that's, that's perfectly appropriate. These kinds of talks aren't for everybody and there will be lighter topics down the road here somewhere. Uh, but I really, my own feeling is about um, understanding death is that uh, the spiritual heart, uh, I think in the, in the beginning at least, many of us get involved with meditation and our spiritual practice as a way to be soothed and comforted, as a way to, to, to obtain some relief and some quietude in a life that otherwise, is call, otherwise causes us a great deal of stress and anxiety. And in the thick of all that, we're trying to figure out our place in things. And I think that's a, a noble and um, certainly practical way to start meditation. But uh, I think we also need to push ourselves a little further beyond that because we can rest there for a great deal of time and not be challenged by the circumstances of life in a way that uh, would really allow us to come to deeper sense of harmony than just resting within the quietude of meditation. And so uh, it is with that intention that the subject of death is introduced because in fact uh, death is what a spiritual growth is all about. And unless we at some, in some way or other begin to align ourselves to that fact, real spiritual understanding remains distant, I believe, and aloof. Point uh, to this was uh, in a conference that I attended this weekend. It uh, was sponsored by the Washington State Medical Association and it was the second of a series of conferences on end-of-life care brought the field of hospice and palliative care together, people giving up uh, most of their Saturday. And I was one of the um, minor, minor presenters in that conference. And uh, not as, as a spiritual uh, teaching, but more as a, a hospice director. And I got up and sort of uh, stumbled over my words, as I do when I'm not very well prepared. Uh, and I came back to my seat, and 
I was with friends. I mean, most of the people in the room, or many people in the room, I certainly knew. But this enormous sense of wanting to be comforted, or to wanting to be told that uh, I was, it was okay that I'd made mistakes, that it was okay, and somehow to relieve the kind of internal suffering that I was feeling in relationship to the jumbled uh, brief speech I gave. And then all of a sudden, I realized what the conference was about, which was death and dying, and I just didn't move from that sense of wanting to be comforted. And in essence, I feel as I aligned myself to the real intentions of that conference, which was to die to that uh, self-reference, to die to that kind of self-agony. And that really what death does is that it points towards the essence of what Buddhism is about, which is our real emptiness, our real inherent nature. And it doesn't have to be always addressing the dramatic physical death that many of us are um, feel as if there, it is years off before we actually face that. Although, from the events of this week, we may question that assumption. But it could be much more profound, I think, if we understood how it is that we constantly seek self-preservation, moment after moment, that defies what real life is about. And that to use death in a way, in a more subtle way, to give up some of our neurotic needs and some of the tendencies we have to maintain a certain level of self-image and identity in this world uh, may in fact be the more and the deeper meaning of what these talks are about. Now, I, I believe that there is some connection to our physical death and these spiritual deaths, because uh, physical death is so absolute, it won't let you forget it. I mean, how can you pretend that you're not going to die? And I believe, actually, that's the reason that it's become sort of the in thing to everyone to write about. As a matter of fact, I have a book coming out in the spring <laughs> <laughs> on death and dying. <laughs> Uh, but you can uh, certainly just walk into any bookstore or any library and, and see the volumes on the shelves. And I believe it's because it's, it's too personal to deny. I mean, if it were AIDS, well, that's a certain population, and if I don't fall into the high-risk categories, I can push that over there. Or if it's um, multiple sclerosis or whatever, you know, if, if I don't have the right genetics, I don't have to worry about that. But who doesn't have the right genetics for death? And it's because it, it's a personal event for each one of us. In it is the power of that moment. And so that it aligns us somehow with the passions of our life. It's not a morbid, I mean, if you walked 
through the aisles of the hospice staff, any hospice, not necessarily ours, you would see an enormous amount of joy. And many people uh, come and volunteer thinking that it's going to be a morbid kind of reflection and job, but somebody needs to do it. And end up laughing and feeling the joy and the participatory healing that addressing this subject really has for each one of us. Because it takes us to the passion of life. I mean, death is going to happen. Time will end for each one of us. There will be a moment when time ends. Right? Now let's not fill in the next moment with any of our beliefs. We don't know what that next moment is, do we? All we know is that there's a moment when there is consciousness in the body and then there's a moment when the body is without consciousness. And if we don't extrapolate and use our religious traditions to fill in that blank with the heavens and hells of the literature, if we leave ourselves not knowing what that next moment is, or even if there is another moment, then it calls into question how we live. Because if it continued, if I can say, okay, there's heaven or there's hell, then I have this whole moral obligation to my life that justifies my death in a way. But if all I know is that it ends, then I have to look at my life in a completely different way. Because it means that all the things I'm believing life to be about, all the accumulative effects that life is, but if, if, it, if there's a moment in which all, which all that ends, then what is the accumulation about? Right? If there's a moment in which I have to let go and that no longer matters, it comes to an end, then the process of accumulating is also called into question. Why do it? Isn't that logical? So if we can really face our death so that we know that we're going to die, so that we know for a fact that this is event is going to happen to me, then that becomes in ourselves. And we can relook and realign ourselves into a whole different way of what life is about, the meaningful intentions of life. What, li what is life? What is life? So if each one of us could just for a moment, and we'll be doing this a lot, reflect on your own personal history. The car that almost hit you, the fall off the ladder, the near drowning accident. In most of our lives there was a moment or more than one moment in which we came very near to death and perhaps had an occasion where we were in coma or pushed right to the brink of dying. Now, that reflection can disturb us because we would prefer life not containing that kind of tragedy. That's not, in our, in our idea, for most of us, uh, death 
violates the perceived purpose of life. Perceived purpose of life is to maintain health, to be happy, and that somehow pain and suffering and death violate what it is that we're alive for. And life should be according to our morals. I mean, we live morally and we expect life then to take care of us because we live in accordance with a standard of living that we think everyone should adhere to. Big fish should not eat small fish, should they? It's not right. Children should not die before their parents, should they? And the just and kind of hearts that should certainly have less pain than the criminal. But it's not the way things are. That's not the way things are. So whose life are we going to live? Are we going to live our moral standards and assert that upon life as the standard by which we judge and evaluate or are we going to live with the way things are? And how is the way things are? Because, in fact, we suffer in accordance to the relationship of our misperceptions about the way things are. As I mentioned, death doesn't make any sense to anyone. It calls into question the logic of our God, if we are honest. It ignores our self-righteousness. It's not fair. <laughs> it reminds us, really, that we don't have the upper hand and that everything is fundamentally out of control. That's what its real message is, is it not? It's because we want life to be meaningful on our own terms. So, if living life on our own terms means that we're going on a collision course with our own suffering, and if the Dharma, what we do here, is to actualize the way things are, and death is the way things are, then it makes sense that we need to turn away from the kind of moral judgments that we live by and address really the stark reality of the way things are. And it's that turning away, it's that realization, it's, it's that um, investigation and inquiry and that deep sense of searching in oneself that is the first indication, I believe, of a mature spiritual seeker. The soothing and the comfort of meditation is, then there's an enormous healing impact that meditation has upon us. And I don't want to in any way belittle that because it has... Uh, 
it has a very um, um, complete and impactful um, feeling to us all to feel that wholeness of spirit, that wholeness of health, that sense of uh, of, be, of the inward quietude that begins to infiltrate us in meditation, and we so desperately want to perpetuate that and to hold on to that. But the real maturity of spiritual development won't rest there. We'll use that for the healing that is imparted, but it won't rest there as an end in itself. Because no matter how quiet we get in ourselves, no matter how peaceful and how centered and how tranquil we are, if we haven't looked at the way things are, if we haven't addressed reality in its naked appearance, then we are caught in a very temporal form of happiness. Change of conditions, I get a lump on my breast or in my lungs. Where is that centeredness, that soothing silence that we so long for? As one meditation, Zen meditation teacher said, your practice is wonderful in quietude, but how is it in turbulence? And when we turn to death, we turn to turbulence. And so, I ask you to turn with me for these, this month together. Let's look and see. What do we have to lose? Because when we open to the lessons of life free of our pretension or belief about what life should hold, we really let life in to make an impact upon us, to have its effect, to be able to resonate within us, for it to teach us rather than for us to hold certain standards and buffer ourselves with life, to life, through these standards that we hold. Big fish should not eat small fish. You shouldn't do that. That's our thinking, imagining a reality or an imagery upon life that life itself isn't, isn't following those rules. And so we have to have a deep abiding faith, I believe, that in reaching out and touching through all of the imagery and pretension and ethics and all the things that we put in the way of life, we reach through that and actually touch something of life that's real, that it's safe, that ultimately it is safe to do that, that ultimately it is for our own help towards our own benefit that we do that. That takes an awful lot of courage. And when we turn to death, it takes an enormous amount of courage because there it is, raw life, right up there, right facing us, right in there. It's always been the elephant on our coffee table. We've just tried to ignore it in our living room. So we have to believe that facing death, facing the fact of our dying, 
is ultimately going to be beneficial to us. Facing the fact of our dying is also facing the fact of why we suffer, how our pain, our discomfort, all of the things that we don't want life to be. There was a, there's a Buddhist story of a young woman who had a child, a very young child, and she had wanted the child for a long, long period of time and finally gave birth to a child. And the child died a few days after birth. And the woman was uh, so um, set on having a child that she refused to believe that her son had died. So she carries the son on her shoulder to all the different healers around her area in India. And every one of the healers said, look, your son is dead. There's nothing I can do. And she said, no, he's not dead. I'm going to find someone who can bring him back to life or to make it, let him heal. Finally, out of desperation, one of the doctors in that time sent the woman to the Buddha. The woman goes to the Buddha and says, please, sir, heal my son. He's sick. The Buddha says, I will heal him. But first, you must do something for me. You must go out into the community and bring back a mustard seed from one home that hasn't been touched by grief. If you do that, I will then heal your son. And so it's said that the woman went out to the village and started knocking at the doors. And in that time in India, everybody lived in extended families. So there were a whole household of individuals, some old, some young, and every one of them had experienced death in the household. And as she knocked on door after door in the village, it said that at some point she realized that death was a complete and total part of life and realized in that moment that her son had also died. And as these stories go, she then went back to the Buddha, they buried her son, and she became fully enlightened. <laughs> you see what it can do? <laughs> but we have to understand that death is going to happen to us. Now, you say, well, I know I'm going to die. That's not good enough. Let me tell you of a story of a hospice nurse who had spent 10 years in the field working with death and dying every single day. She developed a lump on her breast. And the time when the biopsy, but the time when the mammogram showed the lump, or she felt the lump, or somehow it was discovered, to the point when the biopsy showed that the lump was benign, not cancerous, she lived a period of time, let's say a few weeks, of complete hell. And she said that she had always imagined that when she became ill, terminally ill, that she would, having worked with hospice patients, she would be able to go through this thing with a lot of stability and centeredness and not be flustered. She said the whole thing she stood itself right on its head. She screamed out. She was in torment. She 
mind was just erasing. She uh, projected ahead uh, her whole life. She did picked out what hospice staff she wanted to serve her. <laughs> and she realized, then she went back and she realized that it was a benign lump. And then she started reflecting on what had happened. And she realized that her whole hospice time had been used to get only so close to hospice patients that she would only let so much of what was happening to that patient into her own heart and that she had sealed off a safe area where she was working with the patients who were dying, but that, in fact, wasn't what was happening to her. And then, for, therefore, she could just go from patient to patient with her time being untouched, even as others' times were being limited. And she went back with renewed vigor after that to really uncover some of the deeper ways that she holds herself back from the realization of her own death. So to admit that you're going to die is not good enough. We're going to have to go much deeper. We're going to have to live with some reflections, really do some homework in this course of this month together to come up with the fact, the ever-present fact that that could happen. Princess Diana, Princess Diana and ourselves are not that far apart. And it's only a hairbreadth away from us in Kobe, Japan, who in 1995, I believe, or 96, an earthquake shook at night, killing 5,000 people. And one of the people's accounting of that earthquake was that she was lying in bed she felt the whole house shake. She woke up to find her ceiling around her bed. 5,000 other people weren't as lucky as that. Now, it's going to cause, or it should cause, if we do it right, some jitteriness. Why would anybody want to approach this subject? Why would we really want to go into this? And for some of us, it can cause a great deal of discomfort. So we have to have faith. We have to have some sense that this is ultimately going to be beneficial to us, that there, it makes sense to do this. And I won't be surprised if half of you don't come back next week, <laughs> because that's a hard fact to grasp. <coughs> From Journey of Ixland, which is a Carlos Castaneda book, Don Juan in this book is his Indian teacher. And Carlos says, you know, Don Juan says to Carlos, we don't have time, my friends. That is the misfortune of human beings. Focus your attention on the link between you and your death without remorse or sadness or worry. Focus your attention on the fact that you don't have time and let that act flow accordingly. And let your acts flow, accord flow accordingly. Let each of your acts be the last battle on earth. Only under those conditions will, you, will your acts have their rightful power. Otherwise, they will be, for as long as you are alive, the acts of a timid person. And Carlos says, well, is it so 
terrible to be a timid person? And Don Juan says, no, it isn't if you're going to be immortal. But if you're going to die, there's no time for timidity. Simply because timidity makes you cling to something that exists only in your thoughts. It soothes you while everything is at a law. But then the awesome, mysterious world will open its mouth for you as it will open its mouth for all of us. And you will realize that your sure ways were not sure at all. You see how timidity, we start approaching something and we, we don't give it a wholehearted conviction. We're not committed to something. Well, what does death do to that? I mean, we, what do we have to lose? With death, I believe there can be complete commitment, total commitment. And I also believe that nothing is really ever done in a half-baked way. That it takes total commitment. Certainly, Dharma takes total commitment. And it's not until that total commitment is achieved that the forces of the universe will align with our purpose and intention. Otherwise, in that undecided state where life and death are not really embraced. A little bit of this and maybe, well, maybe a little bit of that. But when there is death, there is total commitment. How can there not be? That's one of the reasons I, I appreciate working with hospice patients. Because they know there's no time left. We don't know that, most of us in this room. And it's until we do that that wavering maintains itself in the uncertainty of when it's going to happen. Well, it won't happen now, it'll happen later. As one hospice nurse told me, she can't go to bed angry at her husband anymore. I mean, as one hospice nurse said, she can't go to bed angry at her husband anymore because she realizes there's no time to hold resentment. In another conversation with Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan says, Death is our eternal companion. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you on the shoulder. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor we have. Whenever you feel that everything is going wrong, your death will tell you that you are wrong, that nothing matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. We have to, I believe, wake up every single day to the fact we're going to die. As one hospice uh, clinician said to me, he has to wake up every day to the fact that he's going to die to be effective on his job. And what we begin to realize 
is that when you let death in, there is a sense of completeness or wholeness of life. That in holding death out or, or resistance to anything that hurts or is painful or adversive towards fractures all of life, divides all of life like the Humpty Dumpty. And it's when we can approach things with a sense of wonder and mystery rather than a sense of aversion and mistrust that life really opens its wondrous doors. I don't know if I've ever told this story to you all. <clears throat> I probably have, but bear with me, those of you who have been through other classes. Worked with a patient uh, who's, who was very close to death. This was when I was a social worker in a hospice program. <clears throat> and um, unbeknownst to this patient, uh, his brother died very suddenly in an automobile accident. So uh, the family meets in a quiet and distant corner of the house to discuss whether they should tell the patient that his brother had died. Since the patient is very close to death himself, they decide not to because it would just cause some anxiety and stress at a time when the patient really didn't need that kind of pressure. So we make that decision, or the family makes that decision, and we go down the hall, up the steps, down the hall to the patient's room. We come into the patient's room and the patient opens his eyes, comes out of coma and says, why didn't you tell me my brother had died? So we said, well, how'd you know? He says, because I've been speaking to him in the tunnel. He turns over and dies 10 minutes later. Now where is that? Where does that fit in the logic of your ways? Where's that fit? Where's that fit? So now, to me, that's what's in science is known as hard data. <laughs> How can you refute that? Well, maybe he heard. He didn't hear. I know he didn't hear. You don't know that, but I know he didn't. Or take this example. We started a inpatient unit in. Uh, an old uh, nursing home that gave us a wing, cleaned it all up, decorated the wing, and had it looking very nice for families. First, first person that comes into room one, ten rooms, starts to uh, die. And two or three days before he dies, he puts on his call light. We come into the room and he says, listen, would you get these twins out of my room? They're asking me to come along with them. And I don't want to go at the moment. We look around and we say, well, we don't see them, but we'll try to get them out for you. <laughs> so we try to shoo them out. Three or four days later, he dies. He goes off. Another patient comes to that room. After he stays there a while, he puts on his call light. We go into the room. He says, would you get these twins out of my room? They want me to come with them, and I don't want to come with them right now. This begins to make the staff a little weird. <laughs> we try to shove them out of the room. This happens again and again 
and again and again. What is that? But you see the smile on your face? Do you see the heart leaping towards that? Do you see that that there's something there that is very enticing? Something there that is very uh, inspiring? Why is that? Don't ask yourself whether it's true or not. That's not the point. The point is that something beyond what we normally and naturally see, something beyond just what is, just how we see the world, calls for us in a way, calls our heart out in a way that is something's reaching from beyond. That's what death will do. <clears throat> it will take, it's like putting your hand into a container. You think there's a, an end to it and it just keeps going. <clears throat> Infinite. And every time, just like in Dharma practice, every time I think I figured it out, I see something that makes me understand that I haven't figured it out at all. But it takes risking the fear of that reach, risking the fear of that step, risking the fear of reflecting upon our own death to find the beauty, to touch the fabric of the joy that rests in that discovery. I had a patient uh, that I was working with uh, that uh, had lymphoma and she was uh, in the later stages of her own life uh, and her husband died uh, from another type of cancer as she was dying and when I heard the story in the hospice and I was going out to visit her I thought oh god this uh, I don't know what, what am I going to say to this woman what do you say to somebody that's just had an enormous loss and she's dying. So I went out there and she was, I just remember seeing this woman who, it, it felt like her consciousness was way back, way back in there. You could almost look into her eyes and you're just trying to reach to have her come out to you. And I said to her, I said, um, Alice, what is it that sustains you now? She says, there's only two things that I live for now. She says, I live for my daughter and I live for my religion. Then I said, you know, Alice, although no one would have wished this tragedy on you, there's what you have just said is what life is about, but few people really observe. You've told me that for you, life is about love, love for your daughter, and your spiritual growth. How many people live their entire lives and never come to that sense of purpose and intention. Let us use these weeks together with that purpose and intention to really discover. Come, we come around light and we come around each other because death is not something you want to do on your own. <laughs> I'd rather be with somebody in the comfort. And so we're going to do this as a sangha, although the reflections and the homework will be done individually. And as I said, we will be looking at the sutra, the sutra of the Buddha, 
to, to guide us into this. I have a piece of paper called Reflections and Exercises on the table there. We're going to take a break now and please pick up one of these pieces of paper and we'll meet back in say 10 minutes. Uh, and if we could do this quietly, silent, uh, so no talking. In it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.